we do here is aimed with helping you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And so um, we are excited about this series that is going to, uh, it's a help series, and um, we're going to address various topics. And tonight it is help I want to change. How many in here want to change? I'm not the only one, right? Okay, so it's help. I want to change. I know we all have areas in our life that we want to change. Um, maybe you would like more discipline in your eating or your exercise. Maybe you need to establish and stick to a budget. Maybe you want to be more faithful in your Bible reading and your prayer time. Maybe you want to get over your fear of public speaking. Maybe you want to be a better listener or learn how to bridle your tongue. These are reasonable goals, aren't they? These are good goals. Well, we usually start off with great intentions. We set our goals, we make a plan, only to find ourselves so quickly going back to the same old habits, the same old us, and it's so frustrating. Well, if the world that we live in is any indication, we're not alone in our frustration. Everywhere I look, there are self-help books. You go to Barnes & Noble, I mean, there's whole sections devoted to self-help. The Internet is full of life coaches. Have you heard of a life coach? Well, life coaches want to share with you their formula for self-improvement. It was funny because several years ago... Um, I went to a three-day-long family reunion, and it was on my husband's side. It was the whole weekend. It was a little too long. Um, but his cousin, a woman in her 50s, late 50s, had made an announcement to us that she had become a life coach. And I thought, well, that's interesting. She believed that she was eminently qualified because she had been through three marriages. She had four rebellious children. She had a plethora of job changes, and you know what? With our worldview, my husband's and mine, it was a very interesting conversation that we had with her because she was eminently qualified as to what not to do with your life. So our worldviews collided that weekend. But repeating a cycle of, of failure is part of the human condition. It's part of life on this fallen planet, isn't it? Well, as I was thinking about this topic, which is big, it's large, I thought, what would be the most helpful questions to try to answer? And I narrowed it down to six out of like 25 that I had. So just for the sake of time and uh, for your sake, I narrowed it down to six. And I thought, what would be the right questions to ask? So... These are the six that I came up with. Why do I find change so difficult? Is self-improvement a sufficient motive? Can't I simply trust God to change me? Is God displeased with me when I fail or fall short? What is the biblical formula for change? And how concerned should I be about my own pursuit of change? I think those are good questions. Well, James 
1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to them. So I'm trusting that God has wisdom for us on this topic and that he's given me a little something to share with all of you. So let's tackle question number one. Why do I find change so difficult? And why do I experience a a continual cycle of failure and going back to the old habits? Well, in his little help booklet, I forgot to bring it, um, Jim Neuheiser, who is a biblical counselor, writes this. He said, the change that we, as biblical Christians, the change we should seek should be unique. goal is not merely to transform some aspect of our lives so that we will be happier or more comfortable. The goal of believers is that we would become more Christ-like and that this change would be to the glory of God. You know, happiness and comfort are very fickle things, aren't they? They're often at odds with what God wants to do in our lives. And what I think will make me happy one moment doesn't necessarily make me happy in the next. It's not unusual for me to desire something different than I wanted a minute ago, an hour ago, a week ago, a month ago. Maybe you can relate to some of these examples. The diet I committed to this morning was sabotaged by my desire for a cookie one hour later. Anybody relate to that? Not having financial worries would make me happy. But the budget I sent last week was just torpedoed by my trip to TJ Maxx. Having control over my tongue would make me happy. But last month's conviction to not gossip just went out the window when I overheard that juicy little tidbit about so-and-so. Marital harmony would make me happy. But my best intentions for a pleasant evening were just tossed aside when my husband criticized the dinner that I made. You see, it really is a problem, isn't it? How motivated I feel to change depends on what my flesh is wanting in that very moment. So how do you get off this roller coaster and change for real? Well, you have to take self out of the equation. You have to take self out of the equation. For the Christian, there has to be one overriding desire that anchors all the other desires that we have. And that is the desire to please God rather than ourselves. Now, some of you might recall this little saying that I shared with you last season. You do what you do because you want what you want. You do what you do because you want what you want. You have to admit it. You sabotaged your diet because you wanted that cookie. It's not that you couldn't say no. You wanted that cookie. You torpedoed your budget because you wanted those new sweaters, right? You gave into gossip because you wanted to share that information. And you declared a night of war on your hubby because you wanted affirmation and he did not give it. Now, let's say that little phrase again, only with the proper emphasis now. You do what you do because... You want what you want. Now imagine a scenario where you do what you do because you want what God wants. 
You do what you do because you want what God wants. In this scenario, you actually stick to your good intentions. You see your life being transformed and changing. And you're consistently content and satisfied and happy. And you're okay with whatever it takes or whatever that looks like. So how do you push yourself off of the throne? Well, Paul Tripp some time ago put out a book called Shepherding a Child's Heart. Long time ago. Well, this is about shepherding your adult heart. Okay? Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you what? The desires of your heart. The desires of your heart. True delight in the Lord takes our sights off of our selfish desires. It fixes our desires on what God wants and what he wants to change in us. And when you delight yourself in the Lord, your desires will change and self will get off the throne. How you delight yourself in the Lord is by preaching the gospel to yourself daily. Preaching the gospel to yourself daily. Now, many Christians seem to think that the gospel is only about salvation. It's about Jesus paying for our sins so we don't go to hell, right? So we have fire insurance, right? But the gospel is about so much, abundantly, incredibly more than that. Yes, we are saved from something, but we're also saved for something. Our life should take on a brand new purpose. Preaching the gospel to yourself every day means that you reset your soul to want what God wants. You wake up and you reset your soul. You focus on what God wants. When you do that, you know what? He is delighted to give you the desire of your heart. And you will want that change. So pushing yourself off the throne of your own life is an act of faith. It's an intentional choice that we make. You set your mind on embracing and believing and living and rejoicing in all that has been done for you in the past at Calvary and all that is being done for you right now as you try to live this life on this earth and all that will be done for you in the age to come for all eternity. That's the gospel. And you have to understand that no one is more influential in your life than you because you talk to you more than anybody else right nobody talks to you more than you do so how much of scripture steers what you say to yourself if you want to change in a way that pleases god the gospel just has to be that lens through which you view your personal pursuits your physical fitness your friendship your finances your marriage everything Paul Tripp also says, make it a daily practice to gaze on the beauty of Christ. Remember who you are as his child. Rest in his power and provision and then act in reliance upon him. Preaching the gospel to yourself is not the same as Bible reading. It is not the same. Bible reading is the food that you put in your mouth. Okay? And preaching to yourself is the act of chewing on that food all day long. 
meditating on it, swallowing it, digesting it, and letting it nourish you so you have the strength to act. You have the strength to do those changes that you've set your heart on. It's meditating on the truth of Scripture intentionally throughout your day. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Discipline of Grace, said, when you set yourself to seriously pursue holiness, you will begin to realize what an awful sinner you are. And if you're not firmly rooted in the gospel and have not learned to preach it to yourself daily, every day, you're going to become discouraged and you will slack off in your pursuit of change. You will continue that vicious cycle, that frustrating cycle of failure. So is self-improvement, this is your second question, a sufficient motive for change? Well, I would say it's definitely an inferior motive for change if you're serious about pleasing God. There are some real significant problems with our motivation being self-improvement because it appeals to our fleshly nature, doesn't it? I'm going to improve myself. Self-improvement goals give us a false sense that we are in control. Another problem is that self-improvement goals will never satisfy us for very long. They won't because I don't think we ever feel improved enough. And our desires change constantly. But probably the biggest, most significant problem with self-improvement is that it demonstrates independence from God. Do I need to move? Independence from God. It's a self-reliance rather than a God-reliance. You know, anybody can make a change in their life with the goal of self-improvement. I think of the show The Biggest Loser. I mean, most people made big changes, didn't they? An alcoholic who joins AA and stops drinking? There was a book out many years ago by Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking. People can change. Unbelievers can change. People who don't have the Lord can change. I have a brother who recently lost 71 pounds. 71 pounds. He had a health scare. He went in and he was diagnosed with a a malignancy. He had a cancer, which they were able to handle. But they put him on um, diabetes medication. They put him on blood pressure medication. He was extremely motivated to make a change. He had a very strong desire to turn things around health-wise. And he devoted himself to this goal. He worked hard, he exercised, and he obtained his goal. In fact, he surpassed it. He had set it at, what, 65 pounds? He lost 71 last time I checked with him. That's a big deal, and I'm happy for him. But my brother does not care about pleasing God. He is a self-proclaimed atheist, and he would tell you so. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. As Christians, we not only believe in the existence of the one true God, but we also believe that he will reward our diligent pursuit of him. That means we devote our efforts in every pursuit to pleasing him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 states it very simply. Anybody know that one? 
Yes, whatever then you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. My husband loves this. Fill in the blank to the glory of God. Physical fitness to the glory of God. Friendship to the glory of God. Shopping to the glory of God. Says that all the time, so he'll be happy I use that as an example. You know, it's interesting. If my weight loss is because I agree with God that I will not be mastered by anything, 1 Corinthians 6.12, or because Galatians 5.16 tells me to walk by the Spirit and I will not carry out the deeds of the flesh, or because Galatians 5.23 says self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, if that's why I go after my weight loss goal, then my weight loss pleases God. Then it pleases God. But if I want admiration, I want to improve my self-esteem, I want to feel better about how I compare to other people, then no. My pursuit is based upon self-satisfaction. And you know what? Scripture actually calls that kind of change, that kind of work stubble, to be burned up in the fire of judgment. When I was first saved, I had a pastor who was fond of saying, we don't want no smoky-smelling Christians around here. We don't want no smoky-smelling Christians around here. He cared very deeply that our goals would be focused on the eternal. In fact, he sat by my dying father's bedside, held out the salvation message, and led him to the Lord. He was a man who really cared about people's souls. Well, Pastor Jim used 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15, to show us what a smoky-smelling Christian was. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. It's not written out there. I'll just read it for you. But you can look it up later. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it, But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay or straw, let each one's work, it will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work to see what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as through fire. Isn't that amazing? God wants us to enter heaven abundantly, not singed by the flame of living a little too close to self. Question three, shouldn't I simply trust God to change me? After all, doesn't Philippians 1, 6, and this is on your prayer cards on your table, it says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is true. God will see to it that those who belong to him are changed. But how much responsibility do we have in our own pursuit of change. Well, let's consider Paul's famous lament in the book of Romans, chapter 7. 
7 verses 14 through 25, Paul is conceding that knowledge doesn't necessarily make obedience easy, does it? So whether he's speaking about himself or Christians in general, I guess there's some debate on this. I'm just going to read you a few of the verses out of there. It says in verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. I I can relate to that. Verse 19, for the good I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. Verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. That's a Christian. That's not someone who's not a Christian. I joyfully confer, concur with the law of God in the inner man. But my body, in verse 23, is waging war against my mind. There's a battle going on. Then he says in verse 24, famous, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This body of flesh, being a slave to the flesh and pursuing my own way. Verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he brings us right back to the gospel. Not only do I do not do the good that I know I should do, sometimes I actually appallingly, shockingly choose to do the opposite. Isn't that something that we do that? I just, sometimes I appall myself. It's like, what are you doing? What are you thinking? My flesh wants what it wants, and it actively wars against my best intentions. So does Paul decide, well, it's impossible. I live in a body, so I'm just going to let go and let God. No, not at all. He thanks God for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, and he goes on to say just a couple chapters later in Romans 8, chapter or verse 12, he says, so then, brother, Brethren, we are under obligation. We're under, we're obligated. We're under obligation because of the gospel, because of what Jesus did to set us free. We're under obligation not to the flesh, he says, to live according to the flesh. Romans 6, 6 says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin to our own desires. Did you know, have you ever heard this, that after the American Civil War, when slavery had been abolished, some slaves actually willingly went back to serve their old masters. They actually did. They had trouble grasping their new status as free people. When their old masters beckoned them to come back, Come back, serve me. They actually did. They went back in spite of the fact that they were free. They didn't accept the reality of their new identity, and they had trouble living as free men. They were used to being slaves. Kind of describes us, doesn't it? The truth was that they were now free. They were free to say no, but they acted as though they were not. That's us. Second Corinthians 517 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. When you've eaten that cookie and when you've ran up your credit card debt, 
when you've spent two hours on social media instead of time in your Bible and prayer, when you've shared that piece of gossip, when you've listened to the old master, did any of those things deliver what they promised? They don't deliver, do they? They make you miserable. They don't deliver the pleasure and the satisfaction that they promise. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out means agony. It means effort. It's like going to the gym and working up a good sweat and those muscles are just screaming. It's going to the spiritual gym. Scottish theologian John Murray wrote this. The pilgrimage, this is old English, the pilgrimage to perfection is not one of quiescence, dormancy, and inactivity. It is not let go and let God. The journey proceeds apace with the most intense exercise on our part. Our working is not suspended because God works, and God's working is not suspended because we work. They're complementary. They are complementary. Our work is grounded in God's working, and our working receives its urge, its strength, its incentive, and its cause from God working in us. That's the gospel. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. So what about the fear and trembling? Well, that should be our attitude, that we would put forth maximum effort, grounded in a healthy fear of offending the holy God that we say we love. So where do I stand when I fail? Is God displeased with me when I fall short? That takes me into a little discussion of legalism. Legalism says that what Jesus did for us at Calvary wasn't enough. His sacrifice was somehow incomplete, and now you must add to it with your own good works. Maybe some of you routinely hear a condemning little voice inside of you saying, you don't measure up. Do you believe that God is more pleased with you when your home is in order? When your children are well-behaved? When you have had your daily quiet time? Do you believe that? Do you have an uneasy feeling that God is upset with you when your home is a mess? When your kids are rowdy? When the laundry isn't done? When you've snapped, been kind of snappish at your husband? Well, you know what? Romans 8.1 says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a statement of fact. You can take to the bank got to be careful because immediately following that is another fact who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit it is simply true that our lives should reflect who we are the amazing thing about grace is that in christ you are equally accepted by god whether your house is clean and dinner is on time or whether your house is a mess and dinner is late or non-existent In Christ, a woman who struggles with sins of the tongue is just as accepted by God as one who doesn't. 
Justification is God's act of declaring you righteous based on the perfect life of Christ, completely accepted just as if you never sinned. Boom, it's done, put it to bed. Isn't that amazing? Sanctification, however, is a different story. Okay, sanctification is the process of progressively becoming more like Christ. You know, when we're saved, we're all raw material, okay? We're a lump of clay that needs to be molded and pressed and shaped into the image of Christ. And there's no option B. This isn't negotiable. This is God's will for us. It is assumed absolutely everywhere in Scripture that God's children will continually, actively pursue spiritual growth. And these efforts can always be improved upon, right? Well, speaking the truth in love, a woman whose home is continually a hot mess, whose kids are routinely rowdy and undisciplined, who consistently ignores her budget, who so often belittles her husband, this woman is not reflecting biblical maturity or a diligent pursuit of holiness. There's no getting around that. You are displaying that you're not serious enough about reflecting the image of the God that you say you love. John MacArthur puts it this way, works are a manifestation of our transformation. Works are a manifestation of our transformation. He quotes Ephesians 2.10 and he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that what? We should walk in them. God uses his word, his spirit, his church, and other people, especially your friends and your spouses, especially your spouses, to help you examine areas where you need to change. Pride and lack of humility will make you resistant to change. It will. Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride goes before a fall. And 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Ladies, don't be offended when people point out an area that needs to change. Instead of thinking, how dare they say that? Think, why are they saying that? What are they seeing that I am not seeing? And more importantly, is it true? Is this true about me? You want people around you who will beseech you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling whose desire for you is like Colossians 1.10, that you would be fully pleasing to him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Sadly, some professing believers, in an attempt to justify a lack of change, twist Paul's um, statement in Romans 6.14, basically saying, you know what, talk to the hand. I'm not under law, I'm under grace under grace we are never told to keep the law so that god is more pleased with us 
In fact, Galatians 5.4 says, You've become estranged, estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. But the people who think that the law plays no role after they, sa- they are saved couldn't be more wrong. Before salvation, the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ, to show us our need for a Savior. Biblical counselors Elise Fitzpatrick and Dennis Johnson put it this way. Since we cannot be made any more perfect in God's eyes than we already are, we are now free to make the law serve us. It will serve us by making us more thankful for Christ when we fail to obey it. And it will serve us by showing us how to love God and our neighbor as we long to. And rather than viewing the law as our enemy, we learn to say along with our Savior, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is in my heart. Your law is in my heart. Psalm 40, verse 8. A Christian does not keep the law so that God is more pleased with them. A Christian keeps the law to show that they are more pleased in God. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. So what is the biblical formula for change? Well, there's an interesting pattern or some form of this pattern in almost every single New Testament epistle. Each epistle begins with a re-preaching of the gospel to those who already know it before any instruction is given as to what they need to do. And I wish I had time that I could take you to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Timothy, Thessalonians. I wish I could take you there. And I would urge you to go there and look for this pattern. But for the sake of time, I selected one of my all-time favorite passages to use as an example. It's Second Peter 1, verses 1 through 13, and it's on the back of your handout. I go to this passage often for my own encouragement and in counseling others. Just follow along with me as I read. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted us precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Peter just repreached the gospel to them and everything, all the promises that are there. Now comes the instruction, verse 5. For this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Why? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Talking about a Christian here. Now the expected response, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. And I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. This is also what we should long to do for each other, isn't it? Stir each other up by way of reminder. You know, Peter knew he was going to depart and go home and be with the Lord soon. He was going to die. And this is what was on his heart. This is what he wrote to us. Isn't that amazing? And he re-preaches the gospel to them. He calls them a bondservant, or more accurately, bondservant means love slave. That's what we are. We're love slaves of Jesus Christ, aren't we? We're people who share Peter's faith, people made righteous by the Savior. And I think this is amazing. He does not consider it a waste of time, nor should we. He rehearses these truths because he knows that it will strengthen them. It's like preaching that gospel to yourself every day. It's taking in the biblical food and chewing on it all day long. He knows that it will help them change. So after he strengthens them, he instructs them. Apply all diligence. Pursue moral excellence. Understand God's will. Exert self-control. Persevere in your pursuit of all these spiritual virtues that I have been talking about here. The expected response is obedience. If you love me, you will obey me. Who knows the address of that one? John 17, 17. If you love me, you will obey me. That's what Jesus said. A Christian doesn't keep the law, so God is more pleased with him. A Christian keeps the law to show that they are more pleased with God. So how concerned should I be about my spiritual pursuit of change? Well, if you want to be a happy Christian, Peter gives us a twofold answer, and he's, he implies we should be very concerned. The first set of reasons is because we have so much to lose if we're not actively involved in our own sanctification. He says that we will be useless and unfruitful as Christians. And the New King James uses the term um, barren. Barren. He also says that we will be blind or short-sighted, that we will not be able to see or remember what was done for us. We'll be forgetful. Christians who don't value their salvation. And the implication is like a type of spiritual amnesia. So you can see why it's so important to rehearse the gospel to yourself. The implication is spiritual amnesia here. And the second set of reasons is because we have so much to gain. We have so much to gain if we are diligent in pursuing God's will rather than our own will. You know what's going to happen? You won't have any doubts about your salvation. 
you won't lack assurance about your salvation. A lot of people live in fear because they have doubts about whether or not they're saved. It will be unlikely that you will stumble into your own old self-centered habits. You will also have abundant joy in your lives now and you will be content to fulfill the purpose for which God has called you. And the last thing, and this really tickles me, is you'll have bushels full of fruit. You'll have abundant fruit when you get to heaven. You won't be standing there with an empty basket looking at the Lord with your head hanging down. You'll be like, here. John 15, 8 says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Remember, we don't want no smoky smelling Christians around here, right? When you forget who you are in Christ, you run the danger of assimilating back into the world. You do. You run the danger of assimilating back into the world and valuing and pursuing what the world values and pursues. Don't return to your old master. You have a new master. Ecclesiastes 3.11, this just, I love reading this, says that God has put eternity in our hearts. He has put eternity in the heart of man so that we can't be satisfied with worldly pursuits. He won't let us be. He's a jealous God. He does not want us to pursue that. Romans 12.2 says, and don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what that good and acceptable and perfect will of God is. I'm going to close with two verses and then I want to read you a poem that um, I think is really fitting. Now we covered this verse before and it's on your prayer cards. It's Philippians 1.6 and it says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I am confident of that very thing because God has promised it. God is working in you and for you for that change. He is completely 100% invested in changing you because he already paid for you. He already paid in full. He purchased you with the life of his son. And not only that, Ephesians 1 Verses 13 and 14, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is guarantee of what? Our eternal inheritance. This world, this life is a vapor. It is just a vapor. It's all going to pass away, and then we're going to head into eternity forever and ever and ever and ever and ever with our Lord. If you have doubts about your salvation, you're listening to this and it kind of bores you, you might need to do business with God. You really might. I mean, there's no time like the present. If you're feeling that little tweak. In closing, I just want to read, have you read along with me this poem by C.T. Studd. You have a copy. Charles Thomas Studd was a British missionary. He was born in 1860 in Spratton, United Kingdom, into a very wealthy and privileged family. In 1885, he entered the mission field, 
with Hudson Taylor and went to China. Studd spent his life in dedicated service to the Lord, serving in China, India, and Africa. And in 1913, he formed the World Evangelization Crusade, now WEC International, which is still in operation today. So let's read this poem. I just think it's just delightful. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or for his will or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, Then help me, Lord, with joy to say, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, Pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for each woman here. Lord, I pray that you would do a mighty work in each one of their lives. Father, I pray that all of us would ever be mindful of the fact that this life is but a vapor. To be lived intentionally and purposely for you and not for ourselves. Help us to love you more, esteem you more, serve you more, as we actively recall what you have done for us. All that you have done for us in Christ. May we be diligently seeking to change in a way that honors you. Mold us and make us into a godly image to the praise of your glory. Amen.